You're listening to Marcus Sahaba Online Radio Podcast. Yes, sir, people. Welcome to another edition of Wasail Al-Alama Sadiqah. Uh, truthful news and alhamdulillah so much is uh, happening around us uh, so much of talking point uh, so much of uh, things are written here there and everywhere and everyone has their own uh, points and own views uh, but the bottom line is everything uh, proceeds by divine decree and uh, not by man's administration it is what allah wants uh, will happen will happen and what we see is a test a trial the fitna and fasad, how we navigate ourselves uh, through all these things. And alhamdulillah, uh, you can't be judgmental. You can't point fingers at certain individuals, you know, or uh, be 100% sure, you know, that person will go to hell, he did this and that. You don't know what the end of that person will be, how they will make parda from this uh, dunya. Sometimes we can be so pious, but our end can take us away and give us that end which is shocking you say Allah but I prayed so many times and I did this and I did that and look at where you're putting me Allahu Alam so Alhamdulillah be careful you know uh, Sheikh Ahmadi that Rahimullah one day told me when Salman Rushdie wrote the satanic verses and people got emotional and people did this and that and uh, his books were like sold out People were buying it. They wanted more of the satanic verses and they wanted to read more and more and more. And eventually what happened, people? Yeah, the people start looking into the noble Quran. They say, oh, maybe there's something there. There's something he was talking about. So they got into the noble Quran. And, you know, I remember the sales of the noble Quran skyrocketed in America. And that we from uh, uh, the IPC, I had to send tens and thousands of Qurans uh, during that time. And Didat told me, he said, Beta, sometimes Allah even uses shaitan to do his work. <laughs> you know what? That's what I'm saying. Where do we stand when we start jumping and playing this and that? Be cool. Just sit back and say, we leave our affairs in the hands of Allah. Perhaps we should be looking more at ourselves in the house of Islam, how we are behaving, where we are going wrong. Are we uniting our ummah? Are we disuniting our ummah? Are our children, are our children empowered to go through the next AI generation? Yeah, the fourth industrial revolution. All that, will they be able to withstand this onslaught of Jahiliya? That is another phase that is coming through. It all goes in a cycle. And in this world of uh, deception, and in this world of which is heading towards Jahiliya, and materialism, and hedonism, and anything, think about it. Yeah, all that. Think deeply, people. Think deeply before we judge others. Think deeply before we start thinking, hey, we have it all. I'm in the comfort zone and I'm going to go so comfortably in my cover. Nabi Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. When you are surrounded by this jahiliya, by this people that never believed in the creator, by these people that buried the daughters alive, by these people that gambled and drank wine and drank everything and did uh, behave worse than animals. What did he do? Yeah, he went and addressed them. He took on the leadership. And, he, you know, they offered him many things. They said, please stop your message. We'll make you the king. We'll give you whatever and ever and ever. But he said, no, I will not compromise on the message 
of La ilaha illallah Muhammadur Rasulullah. Then what did they do to Nabi Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam? They ostracized him. They boycotted him. They made him leave his motherland. They made him leave Makkah Mukarramah. They, uh, you know what? They waged war against him, and they called him funny, funny names. Do people do that to us? In our comfort zone, in our ivory towers, we are making. Oh, we are the keyboard warriors. Get behind uh, the keyboard and start typing ah, and preaching. But did you go for jihad? Did you ex- uh, uh, experience people, people putting thorns in front of you and you're walking on top of the thorns? Did you ever experience that experience where they threw, oh Allah, what they threw on our Nabi Muhammad sallam and Fatima radiyallahu cleaning her father's back? Hmm? Yeah. Sad indeed. These were, and this is what our Nabi Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam went through. But in our, you know, yeah, we sit there in our pious fraud sometimes and make judgment. Beware. Because then maybe he's with shaitan. You've been captured by him. He's giving you all the beat to talk like that. And maybe when you get there and you get a shock, when they'll say, hey, you know what? You were off beat. Yeah, you were offbeat. <laughs> Enough said. And I think um, our topic that's coming up, inshallah, uh, is uh, the Pakistani. Yes, sir, people. Enough said. And uh, coming uh, to our topic this evening, uh, which is an important one, is Imran Khan, a challenger to the Pakistani army. And uh, Shuza Nawaz uh, uh, talking to an individual there. Inshallah, we'll be enjoying that uh, perspective uh, this evening. So I want you to sit back and, inshallah, enjoy this evening's uh, edition of uh, Truthful News. Sit back and enjoy. Bismillah. To a special interview for the wire. As Imran Khan's long march approaches Islamabad and without Imran Khan himself steadily ramping up the tension and the rhetoric, we ask today, how serious a challenge does Imran Khan pose to the Pakistan army and how is the army likely to respond? Joining me live from the American capital, Washington, D.C., is possibly the greatest scholar on the Pakistan army, the first director of the South Asia Center at the Atlantic Council in Washington, D.C., and the author of seminal books on the Pakistan Army, The Battle for Pakistan, and Cross Swords, Pakistan, Its Army, and the Wars Within, Shuja Nawaz. Shuja Nawaz, let's start with the challenge Imran Khan poses to the Army Chief, the ISI, and in fact to the Army as an institution which traditionally ultimately determines what happens in Pakistan. Now, as you know, the Army in Pakistan has faced challenges before from Zulfiqar Ali Bhutto in the 60s and 70s, from Nawaz Sharif, much nearer. In that context, how serious is the challenge Imran Khan poses today? Karun, it's always good to be with you. I'm uh, delighted to be here. Uh, Pakistan today seems to be caught in a kind of a time warp. We are back almost to the 1990s. Uh, when you had successive governments uh, being turfed out uh, in a kind of a musical chairs that uh, your earlier guest, <clears throat> General Gurani, had talked about. Um, the situation hasn't changed dramatically. Uh, and the reason for that is that the political parties are still weak and divided, and they tend to either try and make alliances with the military 
uh, or to use opposition to the military to gain popular support. But the military is the most organized political institution in the country. It also has coercive power and that it uses whenever the need arises. Uh, currently, I don't think that possibility is very real, but uh, things could change. I'll come to how the army will respond in a moment's time. But first, compared to the challenges the army's faced in the past, how serious is the one Imran Khan poses today? You know, I uh, covered the, the rise of Zulfikar Ali Bhutto. I used to work for Pakistan television in those days. And I thought that he posed the most, uh, the strongest challenge to the military, particularly uh, to the military dictator, Ayub Khan. And uh, he had a national following. Uh, <clears throat> Imran Khan uh, is coming close to that, but not at that level, in my view. Uh, he, he doesn't have the, the widespread support that he needs throughout the country uh, that uh, would garner support for him or catapult him into power. Um, the military is extremely well prepared. Uh, they are uh, able to tackle whatever challenges are thrown at them. Uh, and they have now found uh, the, the front men from the coalition that is currently the government of Pakistan, uh, which is uh, essentially the prime minister acting as a front man for his elder brother, the former prime minister who is sitting in London, uh, and who is actually calling all the shots. The Pakistan People's Party seems to have decided to take a back seat. Uh, so I think Imran Khan is important as a very powerful disruptive force, but uh, as to whether he can take on and defeat the military uh, politically uh, is doubtful. Now, when Imran Khan first became prime minister in 2018, he was widely perceived as the army's chosen man. Most people in your country, Pakistan, felt that without the army's support, he would not have won. Today, on the other hand, he publicly disparages the army and calls them neutrals. He's even recently threatened to reveal things that would embarrass the army. How did this relationship go so terribly wrong? Well, Karen, as you know um, from the famous play by George Bernard Shaw called Miss Alliance, when you have a marriage between unequal partners, it won't last. And so this is a very uh, typical definition of a misalliance uh, when you have a marriage between the civil and the military in Pakistan. Uh, on the one hand, you have an extremely organized force. Uh, it is uh, politically aware. It has people all over the country. It is disciplined. And then you have the disruptive uh, force, uh, which is often the, the populist leader like Imran Khan. Uh, but he is commanding a very fractured political party. People uh, who have been in other political parties and have uh, either been removed or couldn't find their way and have found uh, it uh, advantageous to be part of his entourage. Uh, so he is really the party and the party alone. Uh, and he has appealed to the youth. He has appealed to the urban middle class. Uh, but it's not clear that he has the power uh, off the street to back him. Just to go back to the elections, um, I did a little reporting and spoke to people uh, on both sides uh, of the issue of the election. And uh, I can confirm that 
there were selected uh, seats in the Punjab particularly where uh, officers of the ISI uh, offered choices to candidates who had uh, safe seats to either run as independents or not run at all or to join Imran Khan. And uh, many of them did. And if you recall, there was a group of 40 from South Punjab uh, that ran as independents and then joined his government. Absolutely. This is what I was alluding to when I said that many people believe without the army support, Imran wouldn't have won. But the important point you're making is that this is a misalliance and the relationship between Imran and the army, which looked so close in 2018, was inevitably destined to fall apart. Now, in an interview that Imran Khan gave Dawn on the 10th, that is just five days ago, he said the first sign of trouble with the army emerged when the army was reluctant to help his government convict people who were guilty of corruption. He said the turning point, which is when the relationship broke, is when the army chief, that's General Bajwa, wanted Imran Khan to appoint Aleem Khan as chief minister of Punjab and Imran refused to do so because of alleged cases of corruption against Aleem Khan. Do you believe that that is the real moment when the relationship broke or do you believe that in fact the break happened later in around the end of last year when there were differences between the army chief and Imran over the appointment of the new DGISI, which was of course a far more critical issue from the army's point of view. Which of this was the breaking point? Uh, I don't think there was a single breaking point. It was uh, a cumulative effect of differences of uh, management uh, style or uh, lack thereof. Uh, the, the army, as you know, is, is extremely well organized and disciplined and prepares for all its meetings. Uh, Imran Khan is not. And so uh, th this was always going to be an issue. Um, he relies on personal relationships. Uh, the military relies on institutional relationships. Uh, if you recall, uh, there was an earlier difference when he asked for the DGISI, uh, who is currently the senior most officer uh, for the next few days at least, in the running for uh, the army chief's position this year, uh, Asim Munir. He asked for him to be removed. Uh, and he asked for him to be removed because this officer, who is a straight arrow, uh, went to the prime minister and informed him about uh, the alleged corruption uh, involving his family, uh, his household, and their friends, and, uh, uh, and so on. And Imran Khan uh, said to the army chief, he's interfering in my personal life, uh, would you please remove him? And so he was removed uh, only after eight months. So the differences had started at that point. The other problem that was uh, evident to the uh, current army chief was that uh, there was almost a complete lack of governance, particularly in the economic side, where decisions were being made and then unmade. Uh, and Imran Khan was very Trumpian in his decision making. Uh, he was whimsical and he would change his mind. And so uh, blaming it all on the army, particularly when he is the prime minister uh, and saying that the, the National Accountability Bureau uh, reports to the army and not to me uh, is a convenient excuse in my view. Uh, I think if that's the issue, you confront the issue with the military chief and you resolve it. Uh, 
Of course, the final uh, breaking point occurred with the uh, delay in his acceptance of the nominee for the DGISI uh, when he, he said that he needed to interview all the candidates. Uh, in the end, he ended up with the choice of uh, General Bajwa. So uh, that really didn't establish his credentials. Now, today, Imran Khan has taken to threatening the ISI, more importantly, threatening the army and perhaps General Bajwa in particular. He says he can reveal things that would embarrass them, but for the sake of the country, he's chosen not to do so. But that is a clear, blatant threat. It's not just a taunt, it's a threat. It's not something the army is used to hearing from civilian politicians. So how have these threats gone down with the army? Not well. I'm pretty sure, and uh, it will certainly um, spoil the situation for him with the new army chief. Uh, so we are, we are entering into very dangerous territory. When former prime ministers start revealing state secrets uh, and try and embarrass uh, the military, uh, which is uh, one of the more popular institutions in the country, uh, then uh, you're going to be faced with uh, consequences uh, which could prompt uh, somebody with a shorter fuse than General Bajwa into taking uh, some other kind of action, which uh, cannot be ruled out in Pakistan. Uh, you know, at one point I used to refer to the situation in Egypt as the creation of uh, Pakistan on the Nile. Uh, these days uh, I'm often referring to the creation of in Egypt on the Indus. And the illusion there when you talk about the army being forced to take some other sort of action, even though you didn't use those words, is probably some form of army intervention or takeover. And clearly when you say that Pakistan looks like Egypt on the Indus, you're alluding to the fact that the person who runs Egypt is the former army chief, former defense minister, Field Marshal Al-Sisi. I'll come to that in a moment's time. Because that is something I very much want to go into, the possibility of an army intervention. But for a moment, let me continue with Imran Khan. On the 7th of November, Imran Khan wrote to the president of Pakistan, who is, of course, a former member of his PTI party. And as president, he's also supreme commander of the armed forces. And Imran Khan demanded an inquiry into how the DGISI held a public press conference and suggested that the DGISI had breached the Official Secrets Act. Imran Khan has also called for an inquiry into the Director General Inter-Services Public Relations for holding a press conference where he targeted what Imran called is the leader of the largest party, which is, of course, Imran Khan himself. What are the chances that the President will agree to such an inquiry? And secondly, if he does, how will the army respond to an inquiry instituted against the DG ISI, against the DG public services relations? I think this is political rhetoric at best. Um, President Alvi is, a, is an extremely balanced individual. He is increasingly showing himself to be uh, more of a president than being a representative of the PTI. Uh, so this is highly unlikely. Um, However, I think uh, my own understanding is that uh, the current DGISI who participated in this um, press conference um, would not have taken this decision on his own. 
He is a thorough military professional. This is not his want. He has, in fact, issued instructions to the media not to take his pictures or videos uh, at meetings where uh, others are present. And so uh, he wasn't seeking the limelight. Uh, I would guess that he was instructed by the Army Chief General Bajwa to, to go out and, and, uh, and clarify the points uh, that he wanted clarified from the military's uh, vantage. But then you're also suggesting that this is not just political rhetoric by Imran Khan, but also a sign of his desperation because he's appealing to a president who's now behaving constitutionally rather than as a former member of Imran's party, which is what Imran, I presume, hopes he will continue to behave as. Be beyond the realm of possibility that he seeks an explanation um, uh, as a party member from uh, uh, Dr. Albi, uh, saying, why are you doing things the way you're doing them? Uh, you're supposed to be a member of our party. Now, there are reports that whilst the generals are themselves distancing from Imran Khan, and many perhaps don't even want to see him back in power, the middle ranks of the army, it's widely reported, are more supportive of Imran, even if that is silent support. A, are these reports accurate? And B, if they are, does it suggest that Imran Khan has succeeded in dividing the army? Well, we have to first recognize the changing shape of the Pakistan army. Today, Pakistan has an army which is, I would say, truly representative of the population of the country. Uh, it is primarily recruited from the cities and the peri-urban areas. Uh, th this includes not just uh, officers, but also uh, the JCOs and other ranks, the, the Javans. And so uh, anything that affects the cities and the peri-urban areas and of course the countryside, uh, will affect those people. And uh, there is nothing to stop them from sympathizing with one leader or the other. And Imran Khan, to give him credit, has certainly captured their imagination. So yes, um, uh, there is support for him. Uh, however, the military continues to show discipline and order. And uh, I think it is keeping tabs internally on, on any groups that would be disruptive. The biggest uh, issue that has arisen in, uh, in the last few months has been the vocal support for Imran Khan from some uh, retiree organizations. Now, this is unusual in Pakistani politics. Uh, and so a number of organizations have sprung up, including people based overseas. Uh, who are want to give very critical statements against the military and against the army chief in particular. And is that a matter of concern to the army chief in the army? And has the army taken steps to, how shall I put it, silence these people? I'm sure it's, it's both. And uh, in one particular case, the person was uh, taken in for questioning and then uh, advised to return back to England. So, uh, yes, uh, they have the means and the ability to do that. Uh, the Army, as you know, and this is where the Inter-Services Public Relations Directorate comes in, uh, now has enormous resources and technical capacity and links with the media uh, through contracts and uh, subcontracts and so on that they um, can influence uh, what is said and what is not said. So, in other words, Talk of 
differences, leave aside divisions within the army over support for Imran Khan is a bit exaggerated. Is that right? Yes. yes. What about the mood on the streets of Pakistan? How do, and I'm talking in particular about young Pakistanis, view the army? And do you accept that today's young Pakistanis are both more outspoken and more critical of the army than the youth of earlier generations? Is that an important change that's happened in, say, 2022 compared to the 80s and 90s or even the early 2000s? Well, Karan, I, I must admit I have not been on the streets of Pakistan uh, for the last uh, three years. Uh, my last visit ended rather abruptly, as you know, when uh, the army chief uh, essentially wanted me to, to leave and come back later uh, for the launch of my new book because uh, he didn't want any controversial discussions to affect the chances of his extension. Uh, the matter was then before the Supreme Court. So I, I can't speak personally from uh, uh, my experience of what people are saying on the street. However, my communication with people across the country uh, indicates that uh, the youth are not all for Imran Khan, although he does excite the youth. Uh, the youth are also uh, potentially leaning towards right-wing religious parties. And there are two reasons for that. One is that uh, most of the recruitment, particularly for the army, now is coming from the inner cities of Pakistan. Uh, the traditional northern uh, districts of the Punjab uh, have kind of ceded their hold to central and southern Punjab. And um, the data that I had indicated that uh, in the decade ending 2003, uh, more officers were recruited from Karachi than from my home district of Jhelum. Uh, which used to be the sword arm of, of, the, uh, of the Punjab. So uh, there are those changes that have to be taken into account. And the religious parties have a strong foothold in the, the cities, in the inner cities. Moreover, as job opportunities disappear uh, and economic, uh, the economic crisis becomes worse, uh, the recruitment by right-wing groups, militant groups particularly, uh, of these youth uh, becomes much more uh, easier. So what you're saying is that the claim, and it's often made in the press, that the young in Pakistan are tilting towards Imran and are more critical of the army, again, is an exaggeration. I would think so, uh, because uh, not all the youth in Pakistan think alike. Uh, you know, th this is a very independent uh, new generation, and most of them, you know, uh, were are under the age of, of uh, uh, 22 or 23, which is the median age of Pakistan. So um, most of them were not even around at the, at the time that some of the critical issues that the older politicians keep bringing up. Uh, most of them were not around at the time of the last Indo-Pakistan war. Uh, and the second factor which affects them is uh, what happens in India. As India becomes much more uh, uh, right-wing, uh, it kind of provokes the religious and the militant groups in Pakistan to point across the border and say there's a threat there and we need to counter it, so come join us. So I think there's, there's that uh, also as a factor.
Now, let's look down the road a little. Sometime in the next 10 days, but possibly sooner, Imran Khan's long march is scheduled to reach Islamabad. Will the army permit that to happen? Or do you think, as General Durrani was saying to me, and I know you've seen that interview, the army will step in with preventive or maybe preemptive action? I think the decision is that of the government. Uh, the army has the capacity to stop anything. Uh, within the country. Uh, but the civilian government also has the police and it can bring in the rangers who technically report to the Minister of Interior. Uh, so they have the wherewithal to, to stop anything, uh, particularly seal off the, the entry points. And uh, there are some indications that Imran Khan now appears to be targeting Rawalpindi and not Islamabad uh, as his uh, terminal point for the long march. Um, so we'll see how that develops. Uh, but I think much more interesting will be what occurs in the next week uh, when, uh, by all accounts, uh, there should be a decision on the new army chief. Okay. I'll come to that again in a moment's time. But yeah. since you say a lot depends upon what the civilian government, as Prime Minister Shahbaz Sharif's government, wants, let's look at that issue for a moment. If the march reaches either Islamabad or Rawalpindi, and for the sake of the Indian orders, I'll point out Rawalpindi is the headquarters of the army. It's roughly 13 miles from Islamabad. Islamabad is where the civilian government has its capital. If the march reaches either Islamabad or Rawalpindi, and there's violence at the rally, then if he tries to go one step further and convert that rally into a long dharna as he did in 2014 and the Sharif government calls upon the army in either of those two situations either because there's violence or because he's converting it into a long dharna and the Sharif government calls upon the army to control the situation how will the army respond that's a really interesting question and i don't have the answer for that because uh Depending on the timing, uh, it'll be the last week or 10 days of General Bajra's term. Uh, and particularly if a new army chief has been appointed, uh, which is why I keep coming to that, uh, there will be some division of, of thought processes uh, in GHQ. So it'll be interesting to see whether they want to, uh, to go in uh, with guns blazing uh, to, to clear a dharna. Uh, of one of the more popular parties in the country. Absolutely, because in that sort of situation, the army could end up facing a terrible dilemma. Will it be prepared at the request of the Sharif government to fire on its own people and thus control the situation which may be slipping out of hand? Or will it say to Mr. Sharif, sorry, we're not prepared to fire on our own people. You must now negotiate with Imran, concede elections, and then the army runs the risk of Imran winning and coming back. And that, those two choices are the horns of a terrible dilemma that will face the army chief. And that, if it happens in the next days, will still be General Badra. Won't that be a terrible dilemma for him? It will. Uh, but, you know, I'm not in the prediction business. I, I deal with scenarios. And... Uh, one of the scenarios may well be that the military presents options for an election schedule uh, that allows things to cool down. Uh, In other words, you're saying the army will lean on Shahbaz Sharif to say, we, we are not prepared to shoot, 
Don't look upon us to control the situation if you can't do it. Instead, you have to hold negotiations and agree to early elections. But the problem if the army does that is that those elections, as things stand today, will inevitably lead, it seems, to Imran coming back to power. Does the army want to see him back in office? I think that's a very heroic assumption on your part, or anyone's part, uh, given the uh, population of Pakistan and given the current political configuration of Pakistan. Uh, so uh, it's not guaranteed that Imran Khan would win a majority uh, as he did the last time around, uh, because he may not get the support from the ISI or the military intelligence or from other official uh, agencies. Um, that That is uh, still a reality on the political landscape in Pakistan. Well, this is very interesting because most pundits, whether in Pakistan or outside, seem to have formed the opinion that Imran has amassed sufficient popular support to be able to win an election, particularly if it's one that's called early, on his own, and this time round he won't need ISI and army support. You're disagreeing there. Yes. Um, and, you know, uh, pundits uh, are never always correct. Um, I, I'm sitting in uh, just outside Washington, D.C., uh, and uh, we've had an election here which everyone assumed was going to be a disaster for Joe Biden and his party, and it didn't happen. And now they're all scratching their heads. Um, I saw a program on Indian television of uh, real pundits uh, who were uh, looking at the stars and, uh, and predicting uh, a World Cup win for India in, in the T20. Uh, so, pundits uh, can be wrong too. Let's then come, and I've deliberately left it to the end, to the question of the new army chief. As you know, General Bajwa's term is ending. I believe he retires on the 29th, which means that the new chief will step into office on the 30th. That's exactly in 15 days from today. Now, in normal circumstances, the choice of an army chief in Pakistan is a pretty critical decision. But in present circumstances, how much more important and crucial has it become? Well, it's always uh, critical um, because uh, it, it determines the relationship between the military and the civil for the next three years. And unfortunately, if the past uh, is any indication, may, may well indicate uh, the relationship for the next six years. Because if you recall, uh, it was the, the, the civilian government and the opposition combined that agreed uh, to a, a, a new uh, approach which would allow the extension of an army chief um, for a second term and then even beyond. Is there a possibility General Bajwa could get a second extension? If I've been informed correctly, he's still below the age of 64, and technically, I've been told, he could get yet another extension when his term ends on the 29th. Do you think that's at all feasible? I know he's publicly denied he wants one. He's done that in Washington. He's done it in Pakistan. But generals, when offered an extension, particularly in circumstances that prevail today, could change their mind. So what do you think is the answer to that? It's a very, very remote possibility. I think he's, he's done his farewell rounds. He's in the middle of saying goodbye to some of the distant formations. Um, and uh, there are uh, any number of excellent officers uh, in the senior ranks of the Pakistan army that could succeed him. 
that would be denied an opportunity as they were denied before when he took his, his first extension and when General Kiani took his first extension. In which case, do you have any sense of who is likely to be the new army chief? I know you mentioned earlier in this interview that General Munir, who is the senior most general, retires in the next few days and possibly before the 29th when General Bajwa has to step aside. So do you have any sense of who will be the new army chief? Well, we know the names. Um, so let's, let's just quickly, uh, for an Indian audience, explain uh, what's happening. Asim Munir, who is not a Pakistan Military Academy uh, commissioned officer, but an OTS officer, is the senior most. And then uh, you have a bunch of officers, all of whom are from the same uh, 75th Pakistan Military Academy long course. Um, they all were commissioned uh, at the same time. And uh, their seniority is established uh, largely by uh, their, their ranking um, at that time, uh, which is a rather antique and quaint way of looking at this. The other thing that affects their seniority is the day that they put on their, their third star. So uh, people get into all kinds of uh, fine points about you know, who's senior to whom. Uh, having looked at their profiles, um, Sayer uh, Shamshad uh, Mirza uh, and uh, Azhar Abbas uh, appear to be the leaders in this particular group. Uh, General Mirza used to be commander of, of 10 Corps, which is headquartered in Rawalpindi, uh, looks after the LOC, among other things. And uh, Azhar Abbas uh, used to be the chief of general staff. Um, uh, used to be, sorry, the head of uh, 10 Corps, is now the Chief of General Staff. Um, interestingly, uh, he is also extremely uh, well-versed uh, in, in terms of India. He is considered an expert on India. And so um, both of them are highly trained, uh, well-equipped officers. Uh, and then you have uh, Norman Mahmood, who is uh, uh, less well-known because he has uh, retained a very quiet approach to everything, uh, hasn't campaigned uh, ostensibly for the job, is now the president of the National Defense University. Uh, equally qualified, uh, the only negative, and this is a very personal comment on my part, is that the prime minister needs to be careful uh, at what filters he's using uh, to select the next army chief. In my humble opinion, and this is just a humble opinion, um, and free advice is worth what you pay for it, Prime Minister, uh, anyone who has any association with the ISI should not be considered because it creates a very different mindset from those in the regular army. And so if you want the army to be professional and militarily uh, oriented, then uh, it's best not to bring somebody who has uh, dealt in the dark arts, uh, which is the ISI's forte. So uh, his only uh, issue is that he, at one point he was um, DG analysis at the ISI, but within the ISI that is the more uh, thoughtful and it's a kind of a uh, official diplomatic relationship with other agencies. Uh, You're talking about General Mahmood at this moment, aren't you? Yes. And then you have Faiz Hamid, uh, who was controversial. And so uh, the Prime Minister will want to avoid that controversy, of course, and, and he was DGISI. And he broke with his own mentor, uh, General Bajwa, uh, 
on a number of issues, including reportedly on going off to Kabul um, uh, in a very public way, uh, which created problems for Bajwa with his, uh, his U.S. counterparts. Uh, and so, and then you have General Amir, who is an artillery man, extremely well qualified, highly respected. Um, so, there's a great choice. And uh, in my view, if the Prime Minister can't make up his mind, perhaps he could just resort to a, d a blindfold and darts and see where the dart lands on the, which picture on the wall. Uh, it could work. Let me put it like this. You've named five people, Generals Mirza, Abbas, Mahmood, Hamid, and Amir. You raised question marks, if that's the right way of phrasing it, about Generals Mahmood and Hamid. That leaves three in the running, Mirza, Abbas, and Hamid. If you were Prime Minister, who would you pick? I don't know. I would need to, to speak with them and understand their thinking and their background much more than I do now. I really can't say. Uh, what I'm saying is that they're all prepared. They're all extremely well qualified. They're all well trained. Uh, and any one of them uh, would be an excellent uh, chief of army staff. Now, uh, there, is, uh, there is another factor, and the, the prime minister needs to set that aside. There is only one Shia in this group. And I'm saying this because in Pakistan, this is an issue that is raised sort of uh, below the surface. This was an issue that uh, was raised when the, the current uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs was being named because he was Shia and it was considered uh, uh, dangerous for whatever. Uh, I think Pakistan needs to get over that uh, sectarian constraint. And so uh, Azhar Abbas uh, may well be one of the more qualified of these officers, uh, but he's the only Shia in the group. And I hope that that will not stand in his way uh, in being considered. My last question, Shrujanavas, and this is one that I ask particularly with an Indian audience in mind. In its 75-year history, Pakistan has seen several army takeovers. Although in recent years the army, it's widely believed, has committed itself to only playing a constitutional role, and to perhaps giving advice behind closed doors and behind the scenes, is there a danger that in the present circumstances, the situation could so develop, particularly, I suppose, in the next 15 days, that there is an army takeover, even if it's initially announced as one of limited duration to put the country back on the rails, to hold elections and restore, and restore part of the civilian. After all, those were the terms on which General Zia Ullah took over in 77, but his three months very quickly stretched to 11 years. Is there a similar sort of danger on the horizon, or is that an exaggerated way of seeing, seeing things? I think it's a slight exaggeration. Um, the Pakistan army is much more sophisticated in the way it interacts with the civilian authorities and the politicians. Now, they have learned uh, to use the politicians as frontmen. Uh, they also have a much stronger presence in the economy. And so one of the critical factors in all of this is going to be the state of the economy. If the economy tanks and you have much more unemployment than you currently do, you have a negative growth, uh, 
um, and you have disruption uh, of uh, food supplies and supply chains uh, within uh, Pakistani society, uh, then yes, it is possible that some kind of an interim setup, again, possibly using, and this is a scenario, using uh, a technocratic setup to operate for a particular period, uh, which would be pre-announced, uh, and which the judiciary would have to sign off on, uh, may be an option. Uh, and this is really where a new chief uh, is less burdened with making such a decision because he has not yet uh, been fully invested in the, in, the, in the current arrangements, as General Bajwa has been for six years now. Just to clarify, the possibility, you say it's a remote one, is that the army might choose an interim arrangement with a technocratic France, that is to say, technical specialists who know how to handle the economy, like the gentleman in the mid-1990s who was brought from the World Bank to be interim prime minister for three months. Unfortunately, I forget his name. That is the sort of remote possibility that could happen, but not with present existing civilian politicians. Yes, and, and the gentleman you're talking about is uh, one of our, my mentors and uh, highly respected, Moeen Qureshi, uh, who was at the IMF and then went to the World Bank uh, and became uh, a senior vice president there. Uh, he was highly respected by the military um, uh, under General Abdul Wahid, uh, who succeeded my brother, as you know, in 1993. And he also was responsible for some very deep economic changes, including an, an, uh, uh, legislation to make the State Bank of Pakistan a much more independent entity. So yes, that is a possibility. Uh, and I don't want to put ideas into the heads of the, the generals that are being considered. Uh, but um, that is one possibility. Uh, and uh, and, and uh, the U.S. and the West and the Chinese and the Arabs will, will all uh, perhaps understand the need for a stable uh, economic uh, Pakistan rather than an unstable Pakistan with nuclear weapons. You're tempting me to ask one last question. Is there a second Moin Qureshi you can identify? I would not bring anyone from outside, frankly. I think there are enough good people inside Pakistan to be able to run it and run it well. Uh, I'm delighted when I meet young CEOs. I'm delighted when I meet young scholars uh, inside the country um, and interact with them. Uh, I think there's enough brain power in the country to be able to take care of itself. I think that the days of important governments uh, should really be over. Yes, sir, we leave it at that. And I can tell you what brilliant insight coming through, uh, you know, listening to Shuza, Shuza, Shuja Nawaz. And, uh, well, you know, you take something with a pinch of salt and so forth. I'm knowing from the background it comes. But uh, getting to know the military of Pakistan, you know, Ziaul Haq coming in and ruling for 11 years, a military man. And there was a Parvez, uh, was it Parvez Sharif or Parvez Nawaz? Or Parvez Sharif, eh? Now, was it Nawaz? Maybe this guy's brother. And uh, then uh, so forth, uh, you get to know and, uh, a brilliant insight into the uh, how the uh, Pakistani army works, how they think, and uh, the support base of uh, the army now. You know, a lot of young people are there and uh, how the people or the young people of Pakistan think. And uh, we were led to believe uh, that uh, all, most of the, all the youngsters were in the side of 
uh, Imran Khan and uh, you know according to uh, Shuja uh, Nawaz he said no that's uh, not so, so true and also uh, looking at uh, the uh, young people a lot of them are religiously affiliated and inclined and uh, most of them uh, you know they have uh, different opinions and will uh, will listen to uh, religious parties uh, when uh, they are voting so it wa- has been an eye opener for me uh, really enjoying the information coming through and uh, eventually we make our own decisions also allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us uh, that power and inshallah <laughs> keep it locked on uh, to uh, marcus sahaba for beautiful programming and also i must uh, thank uh, lucolo for doing a brilliant engineering from the team and i till we meet you again we bid you assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh